Well, thank you for the opportunity to come back. I will do a quick commercial because I don't have a real job, you understand. Uh, we write books. I call them longhorn books, a point on each end, a lot of bull in the middle. Uh, it's uh, uh, a lot of families read this together, a lot of family humor, but it, do, it does have a point. And then our relationship material is called Family Matters. And then it, our newest series is called Steps to a Significant Life. How do you move from average to awesome? And a little bit of that material uh, is based on raising kids because you can't have awesome kids until you're an awesome person. Uh, and most of what we do is we pass down. And uh, I believe that as Christians, we ought to be raising modern day Daniels. Uh, Daniel, uh, if you read the scripture, the Bible says that Daniel was 10 times better. Now, not just Daniel. I used to think it's just because he was Daniel. But Daniel and all the people with him were 10 times better. In other words, everybody that followed God's plan, they were 10 times better. Wouldn't we be an incredible influence on this culture if we were 10 times better? <laughs> if you're 10 times better at work, if you're 10 times, your marriage was 10 times better, if your kids were 10 times better, it'd be unbelievable the influence we'd have in our culture. So uh, part of that series is how do you move from average to awesome? We've actually changed the name of our, it's the same material, we've changed the name of our children's seminar. We used to call it Raising Terrific Kids in Turbulent Times. We changed it to Raising Champions because I think that a lot of times in our culture, we are, are raising kids. They never grow up. <laughs> They're still kids. That's why we call them the boomerang generation. They're back. Uh, and so we, we want to raise adults. And, and so we've changed the title uh, to Raising Champions. My favorite kid's story is about the kids, two of them, uh, the mother could do nothing with these kids. I mean, she took them to psychiatrists, psychologists. She took them to everybody. Couldn't do anything. Finally, just out of desperation, she decided to take them to the preacher. Maybe the preacher could put the fear of God in them. I mean, maybe he could scare them into acting uh, appropriately. So she said, I want you to talk to these kids. He said, well, I don't know what. He said, just put the fear of God in them. So he said, okay. And she said, one, you stay out in the lobby. The other, you come in here. Brought him his big old office, sat in his big old chair, and in his, in his big holiest voice he could come up with, he just looked at that little kid and said, young man, where is God? Just thinking that maybe he'd think where's God in his life and that kind of thing. And he, so he, he got his attention, so he said it again, young man, where is God? And boy, the kid's eyes got big, and all of a sudden he just darts, heads out of the office, grabbed his little brother in the lobby and says, we're in big trouble this time. God's missing. They think we did it. Well, if you look around our culture today, I think it's pretty clear. God's missing. We did it. We did it, you see. We're trying to raise a generation of kids, and actually, they are replacing our, our in a sense, God. If you, one one uh, dignitary came to America. He said, I was impressed by how well the parents obeyed the kids. <laughs> uh, it's amazing today that we've almost flipped in terms of who's in charge, <laughs> uh, who's, who's running the show this day and age. Uh, it started, I believe, remember Michael Jackson, remember Whitney Houston, remember all those songs, we are the children, we are the world. Keep your adult rules away from us, and we're just going to self-actualize and do what we do, and we will change the world for the better. How did that turn out for Michael and Whitney? Not too good. You take God out of the equation, you're going to end up in a mess. You're going to end up in difficulty. Whether you're talking about a family or whether you're talking about society. 
and raising kids and, and changing and being a difference in the culture is just hard work. I mean, it's hard work. One pastor ran into his seminary professor. Seminary professor said, you're the guy that, uh, that uh, didn't believe in original sin when you were in seminary. He said, is that still the case? He said, no. He said, I, I've pastored a church for 30 years. I've had three teenagers. Not only do I believe in original sin, I now believe in demon possession. <laughs> if you raise kids, you may believe in demon possession sometimes. Uh, so we're going to try to teach you some things tonight, and we're going to go real quickly. We won't have time to get through all the material because uh, i got a lot in my head, but we're going to do as much as we can, and you're going to get out on time like I, like I promised. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 4, uh, verse 1 through 5. Proverbs is a great book of the Bible. Uh, it's like Hebrew bumper stickers. I love Proverbs because that's the way I think. You know, it sums up life just like that. Uh, uh, it's kind of sermons in a sentence, quickly. Proverbs 4 says this, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and what? And live. You want to live a great life, you keep God's commandments. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Main thing we do with kids is we teach continually. We teach them the way the world works. The world is always, remember it's a Ponzi scheme, the world is always telling you, you can have this without that. You can have pleasure without consequences. You can have rewards without risk. And so we raise a generation that thinks they can buy a house with no money down and there'll be no consequences. We, we get into situations where they think, well, well what happened? They didn't, they didn't tell me about this. So the job as parents is really all of us to tell the next generation, this is the way the world really works. You see, to be successful in life, it's almost like in our world, you drive down the wrong side of the road. You, you go opposite of what the culture tells you to do. It, it, can you imagine? See, most of our habits are unconscious because if you teach them to continue, they, they will become unconscious. For example, you're a driver. Most of you are drivers. You drove here tonight. You don't even remember driving, do you? I mean, you don't remember what happened. You don't remember where you stopped. You just, your car's out there. You must have, you must have been the driver. You know? uh, it's, it's become unconscious to you. So that's easy behavior. It's behavior that's just become you. Now let's take that same situation and uh, let's just say today we would drive from Austin maybe uh, uh, to Houston. I spoke at the, at the Woodlands Church Friday and we drove over here uh, uh, Saturday morning and it's about a, about a three hour drive and we weren't really that tired. It was, you know, we uh, kind of stopped along the way and got a Diet Coke and it, it, was, it was fine. But you can imagine making the same three-hour trip outside of London. You would be totally exhausted when you get to the next town. Same mileage, same everything, but you'd be totally exhausted. And here's the reason. All of your behavior would be conscious behavior. You would have to think about everything you do. Why? Because they drive on the wrong side of the road. So you'd be just like, here comes a car, and it's on the wrong side. And if I, if I don't get over, if I said, if I, if I, I got to stay over here, or I'm going to die. I mean, that's, it, it would be, you'd be stressed out. You'd be stressed out. And it would be very difficult to do that. It's very difficult in this society to be successful, to be ten times better. Because it's like driving on the wrong side of the road. So, so, so how do you do that? Well, one way you do that, in fact, I, I speak to a lot of businesses 
I asked one company, I said, what would, what would help you be able to drive on the wrong side of the road? And one lady raised her hand and said, to get somebody else to drive for you. <laughs> That's our culture, isn't it? Let's, it's just too hard. Let somebody else do it. Let somebody else do it. No, what would really help is to find somebody who would be in the car with you, who is an encourager, who's a person that believes in grace, you know, who could say, man, you're doing great. Man, I know that, man, that truck came by and you stayed over here and we're alive. Way to go. Good job. You know, that, that, that would be encouraging, wouldn't it? See, that's what family is. That's what church is. Somebody with you to say, hey, it, it's, it's the wrong way. Everybody said, but hey, you get to your destination. This is working. You're going to be able to do this. See, and, and, and what would really help is somebody that's lived in London, that knows the right roads. I mean, there's some roads in Austin. You know a certain time of the day. If you've lived here long enough, you know you don't want to, especially if you're a young driver, you, you don't want to go on that road. You don't want to go on that road. You know, in Dallas, it's like LBJ. It's 635, a certain time. Of, you don't want to be on that road. You know, That's what parents are. That's what teachers are. That's what pastors are. Hey, this is the road. This is the road. You don't want to be on this road. This is, this is the road you want to be on, you see. And the key to success in life is for you to be able to teach that person continually that it becomes them. They do it long enough that now they do it unconsciously. They become an awesome person. That's just what they do. That's just how they are, you see. Because you have to do it, but you have to make sure you're able to do it long enough. You know? Because your Adam suit member doesn't want to do it. You know? it, it see, it wants what it wants. Here's what, here's what Tom Landry said, who was probably the only Dallas Cowboy coach we've ever had. Here's what Tom Landry said. He said, a coach's job is to make guys do what they do not want to do in order to accomplish what they've dreamed of doing all their lives. That's, that's what teachers do. That's what parents do. We, we make people do what they do not want to do so they can accomplish what they've dreamed of doing all their lives, you see. That's hard work. That's hard work. But even secular research documents this way works. That the way of delayed gratification, of, of, of observing the season of God. There's a season, a time of God when you're to get these benefits, but it's in his season, not in your season. You see, your Adam suit wants it right now. You don't want, want to wait for Mr. Right. You want Mr. Right now. You don't want to wait for Mrs. Right. You want Mrs. Right now, you see. And so we jump ahead of God's plan because we want that immediate pleasure. There's an interesting study in psychology. They took four-year-old kids. They brought them in their room, and psychologists are always watching people, you know, behind one-way mirrors. And they, uh, they uh, told these kids, they had them a marshmallow, a big marshmallow. And I don't know if it had chocolate on it, but it was a, it was a very aesthetically-looking marshmallow. It was a good-looking marshmallow. And, uh, uh, you know, Easter time's coming around. Don't you love those chocolate bunnies with marshmallows in the middle? I mean, I'm thinking about them right now. But anyway, uh, so uh, don't get me off on that because my earth suit's kind of going, going that way. So, uh, so uh, they said to these, these four-year-old kids, this is your marshmallow. You can eat it right now if you want to. But if you don't eat that marshmallow, when I come back, I'm going to give you another marshmallow. You can have two marshmallows. You come back. Two marshmallows. What did most of the kids do? <coughs> Ate the marshmallow. You know, just, I mean, chocolate calls your name, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it'll talk to you. I promise you, chocolate will talk to you. Uh, and, and so uh, they, they ate the marshmallow. Some tried not to eat the marshmallow, but they didn't have a plan not to do it. See, the mind can only have, two, uh, have one thought at, at a time. And if you can't get the thought out of eating the marshmallow, you'll eventually eat the marshmallow. You've got to replace that thought with something else. They, 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 they ended up eating the marshmallow. They tried not to, but they ate it. 
a, other, a, a small group of people, small group of four-year-olds, did something else. They found something to play with. They did something else. They had another thought in their mind other than the marshmallow. They forgot about the marshmallow. They did some other activity. People came back. These kids got two marshmallows. But that wasn't really what they were looking for. They were looking for the long-term effects of being able to delay gratification. They followed them throughout high school. The two marshmallow kids were ahead on everything. But the real clinker, the one you can really measure, is SAT scores. They scored 200 points higher, the two marshmallow kids did, than the one marshmallow kids. 200 points higher. Why? <coughs> Excuse me. Because that's the way life works, you see. That's the way it is. You got to figure out how, how does this thing, how can I be successful in this world that's always trying to get me to do things that it's not good for me to do, see? So we have to teach continually. And notice this from Proverbs. It talks about the father teaching. Another thing that's happened in this generation is we've pretty much turned the teaching over to the women, to the mothers. The, the, the mothers teach them kids. Not what the book says. The book says fathers teach. Fathers teach. Men, do not let the clutter of your life keep you from the calling of your life. Your calling is to pass down wisdom to the next generation. Your, your, your calling is to let them know this is the way the world really works. This is, this is how it works. I, uh, when my kids were young, I'd always put the kids to bed at night. That was my job. And Penny was usually exhausted by then anyway, and that's when you, that's when you learn a lot of stuff about your kids at night. I, I call it when the concrete's soft. You know? uh, I wish I'd have written down everything they said. You know, I, I wrote down a lot of it, and you know, I, I got some pretty good books because of it, but uh, I'd have some really great books if I'd written down everything they said. I mean, that's when you find out what they're thinking, you know, when they, just before they go to bed. And there one night, Brienne, she was about first grade, she told me they were studying astronomy in school. I was pretty impressed. Studying astronomy? Yeah. Oh, man, what do you learn? Well, about the planets. Oh, you learned about the planets? Yeah. And I learned a poem. I said, oh, really? What's the poem? I learned that girls go to Mars to get candy bars and bars go to, boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. I said, you learned that in class at school? No, Mary sits beside me. She taught me that. So you're going to find out the kids are teaching her a lot more than the, than the teachers are. And then you can talk about boys. Then you can, you know, say, hey, yeah, boys, you know, there's a certain time when you're going to like boys. And, and they got the IQ of plant life when they're about 16. And so this is what, you know, how you deal with that. And so, so you, you, you go through all that. It's a teaching moment, you see. You, you find those moments when you, when you can do that. You see, in our culture, we're teaching so much about the games of life, football, baseball, soccer, all that, but we don't teach enough about the game of life. I love the story of uh, Sean. Sean was a, one of those special needs kids. I love to tell a story about special needs, handicapped kids, because we're all special needs. We're all handicapped just in different ways. One day, his dad and Sean were walking through the park and Sean noticed that all of his classmates were playing playing a ball game he looked at his dad and said dad you think I could ever play with him on baseball one day and dad said oh Sean maybe maybe so he said well maybe today you think you think I could play he said well I don't know he said well would, would you ask him 
My dad kind of looked around. It seemed kind of be a semi-formal kind of deal. He didn't even really see a coach. So he asked the pitcher out there. He said, hey, you, you know Sean? He's in your class. You, you mind if Sean, Sean can play? Oh, yeah, we're losing anyway. Come on out here, Sean. Come on out here and put Sean out in the outfield. And lo and behold, they started catching up. You know, they started getting some runs. And, and then the worst thing happened could have happened. It came up to be the last inning. Bases loaded, two outs, and they're behind by three runs, and Sean's at bat. And Dad said, oh, no, he's, he can't hit the ball. They're going to strike out and lose the game. And He said, Sean, you don't have to bat. And, and, and the supposedly pitcher in charge said, oh, yeah, it's Sean's turn. Let him hit. Sean goes up there. He didn't really know how to hold the bat, and the pitcher threw it, and he swung after the ball passed. And Everybody knew this was a little different situation so the pitcher started to move up a little bit one of the players on the other team came up and said here Sean here's how you hold the bat <laughs> you know and Sean swung and missed it again and pitcher came up a little more and the player on the other team said Sean let me let me help you hold the bat I'll do it with you so they held the bat together the ball came and together they hit it <laughs> it didn't go far it went right to the pitcher <laughs> easy out everybody said run Sean run Sean runs towards first base and the pitcher picks it up Turns around and to everybody's surprise, he throws a ball as far as he can out there in the right field. Everybody said, run to second, Sean, run to second. And Sean runs to second. And by then the right fielder picks up the ball and throws it as far as he can to left field. And the second baseman said, Sean, run to third. But Sean didn't know where third was. So the shortstop said, I'll take you. So he went with him to third base. They got to third base, the left fielder decides to throw it back to the right fielder. And everybody said, Sean, run home, run home. And Sean runs home and scores a home run and they win the game. And both teams pick him up, carry him around. Sean won the game. And, and that dad said, those boys have enough wisdom to know when to lose and to know when to win. You see, I, you, I love sports. Baseball, basketball, hey, win if you can. But in the game of life, the boss says sometimes you lose. You really win when you lose, you see. When you look at the other person and what they need. So we need to teach them how life works, how relationships works. We teach continually. We communicate understandably kids up to a certain age cannot think abstractly they don't live in our world they don't understand what we're talking about half the time I had a pastor friend of mine he was a, he was a pastor of a traditional church his wife sang in the choir and he preached and then he didn't have anybody so his four-year-old boy sat on the front row you know kept him on the front row and just about halfway through his sermon, every Sunday, the little boy would get up and go to the bathroom, just to just disrupt the whole thing. And he kept thinking, I've got to tell him not to do that and make him mad every time. Finally, he grabbed him before church one day and said, son, I do not want to see you go to the bathroom today. If you got it, look at me in the eyes. I do not want to see you go to the bathroom. You got it? I got it. Okay. Gets up there preaching, preaching away, turns around and looks, and the boy's gone. I mean, he's just not there. But he doesn't see him. You know, he doesn't see him. And then all of a sudden, he sees people in the pews going, <gasps> and looking down. And his son thought 
the key here is do not see me go to the bathroom. The problem is not going to the bathroom. It's him seeing me go in the bathroom. So he's crawling under all the pews, causing more disruption than he could ever cause in his life as people are seeing him come through. But he thought he was doing right. Why? Because he lives in a concrete world, you see. If you ever took Psych 101, you know Piaget developed the times when kids learn how to think abstractly. Most of the time, young kids don't have a clue what you're talking about. That's why you got to communicate understandably to them. Make sure, hey, you really know what I'm talking about here. Most behavior problems at that age are just, they don't have a clue what they're supposed to do. Uh, let, me, let me do an experiment with you. I've done this all over the country. I've done it with CEOs of companies like Hewitt Packard. You, you do this, I promise you'll never forget what it's like to be in a different world. Let's take the world of children. I want audience participation, just like this morning. If you don't participate, it won't work. So I want you to raise your hands as high as you can. Pastor said it's okay. Uh, uh, I want you to keep them up as long as you can because I want to cause as much pain as I can. Listen to a kid say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. You think he says that? He doesn't have a clue what, what those words mean. Those are all abstract words. So he says something like, I lead the pigeons to the flag or something like that. You think he says one nation indivisible? He'll say a naked individual every time. <laughs> Listen to kids at church. Church is all abstract. They don't have a clue what we're talking about at church. Kids think round John Virgin was the fattest of 12 opossums. They don't know what we're talking about. They say the books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Olivia, Newton, John, Genesis, Exodus, Lexus. I mean, it's confusing to them. They think God's name is Howard. Howard be thy name or art who art in heaven. And one teacher was named Mrs. Murphy. She was giving this kid a hard time, always making his life miserable, giving him homework. So he translated that psalm, surely goodness, Mrs. Murphy will follow me all the days of my life. Listen to them at church. They don't even sing the songs we sing. I was standing by a kid. We were singing, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. He was singing, soon and very soon, we are going to Burger King. <laughs> we just live in a different world. We try to reason with them from our world. Brother and sister fighting over the last piece of chocolate cake. Dad said, son, what would Jesus do? He said he'd make more chocolate cake. That's what he would do. <laughs> How many of you feeling any pain? Pain's what I'm looking for. It's going to feel good. Put your hands down. Doesn't that feel good? See, now you know what it's like for a three-year-old to go to the mall with their parents. One takes one arm, one takes the other arm. You walk around like this for hours and you tell the kid, we love you. Took you out of preschool, it's your birthday, you're having fun, aren't you? They're dying. Never forget that. You see, you think you're loving somebody, but you've never taken time to enter their world. You're not loving them. You're loving yourself and taking them along with you. So you got to love, communicate understandably. Then I got, I got to move on. You got to talk courteously. One uh, kid went to first grade, came back home, said, what'd you learn at first grade? He said, I learned my teacher could holler just as loud as my mother can. <laughs> you know, in First Peter, when it's talking about families, it talks about in the old King James that you talk courteously. You speak courteously. Some of you speak to the neighbor's kids better than you speak to your own kids. Some of you speak to the neighbor's wife better than you speak to your own wife. Speak like God speaks to you. Speak gently. Speak kindly. There was this kid. He was a, he was a runner. He was in the state championship. Dad was a pastor. and Dad ended up 
having surgery and couldn't go to the state championships. So he called his brother and said, you know, my son's running in the state championship today. It's a huge deal for him. I'm not going to be able to go. Would you mind going and, and, and being there for me? And his brother said, oh, sure, I'd love to. I'd love to. He said, and, and look, here, here's how I do it. I'm always there when he starts the race. And I, I just holler out his name, and I tell him, do your best. You're going to go good. We're so proud of you. And I holler out his name two or three times. He said, and then I'm, I'm there at the middle, you know, you know. Uh, I, I, when he's getting a little tired, I'm, I'm there, and I just say again, how great you're doing, oh, you're doing great. You know, I call out his name again. And said, so then I'm just before the finish line, when he's just about to give out, just before, about 200 yards before the finish line, be right there. And I call out his name just like that. Could you, could you do that? He said, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then he said this, and could you make your voice sound like mine? Wow. That's, what, that's all God says. Encourage your family. Make your voice sound like mine. Encourage them the way I encourage you, you see. That, that's, that, it, the family ought to be the home court advantage. It ought to be when people's on your team, not on your back, you know, where, where they're trying to encourage you. So we talk courteously. We love creatively. We love creatively. Every child is different. The Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. That, that means like a snake in the water. That, that means uh, like a, a, a fish in the water, or excuse me, a snake on a rock. Uh, that, 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 that's the way your child is bent. See, God made them differently, not so you could live your fantasies out through them. We have so many kids nowadays, parents trying to live out their fantasies through their kids. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to say to every parent, you have to give your report card to your kid and you have to make a list of your athletic achievements that because you were sorry and no good in sports and you were pretty dumb in school and yet you're putting all this pressure on your kid to be this fantasy that you never were able to do yourself. And so just give him a break, you see. Uh, be what, find out what God is. Remember, you can't be anything you want to be. You can only be what God designed you to be. You may be a ball player and want to be a ball player and your kid's a trumpet player. Well, you better encourage that trumpet player, you see. Because God made him that way. See, that's, that's, that's the way he's supposed to be. Love them differently. We had three girls, they're all different. All had to love them in a different way. So that's, that's good stuff, but I'm, I'm going to finish on time, okay? So I'm gonna, just going to skip through that. Just say one other thing about that, and that touch is very important. Uh, you ever took Psych 101, Harry Harlow? It's a name you may remember. Har Harlow did a study with monkeys. did an interesting study with monkeys. He had monkeys that were terry cloth very soft monkeys and then he had monkeys that were wire monkeys but they had milk and nourishment and then he had these monkeys uh, that were separated from their mothers and so these monkeys were surrogate monkey mothers you understand what i'm saying psychologists do weird stuff but that's what they do uh, surrogate monkey mothers and so they would get their food from this monkey and then they get their touch from this monkey and then he scared the monkeys you know after a certain time i don't know what he did he monkey monster or something i don't know but he scared them and he hypothesized they would run to the mother that gave them nourishment. But just about everyone ran to touch the soft monkey instead of the feeding monkey. And he realized, and I don't believe we came from monkeys, but I believe we all have the innate need to be touched, to be held. They say with premature babies, you've got to connect the talk with the touch. You know, rub on them, talk to them. Now, boys are... Boys are loved in a different way, but not at first. When little boys are young, just like little girls, you love them just like you do girls. You give them that ooey-gooey, sloppy kind of love. You hug on them. You kiss them. You say that'll make them a sissy. No, it won't make them a man. See? 
uh, I used to work at a mental health clinic out of Fort Gordon, Georgia. And uh, we had a lot of kids in our therapy group for what we called effeminate behavior. They were sissies. And the reason was their fathers were what? Drill sergeants. And they didn't love on them. They didn't hug them. They told them that men were tough. Men didn't cry. Men didn't hurt. And guess what? These little boys thought, I cry, I hurt. I must not be a man, you see. Uh, so you love on them. You, you give them the same. It, it, research says that girls get seven, six to seven times as much touch as little boys before first grade. And, and boys have six to seven times as many learning and psychological problems as little girls do. So touch those little boys. Now, they'll reach a certain age, like first grade, where they start to get embarrassed by that ooey-gooey, sloppy kind of love. That's what I call it. And so, like mothers, if you want to kiss them goodbye at first grade, it'll be in the floorboard, you know, because I don't want anybody to see this, you know. Uh, and then that's when you change. You start giving them more masculine kind of love. That's when you, you hug on them real, how tight can you squeeze me, that kind of love. And you wrestle with them on the floor. and how, You do those kind of love. Now, girls... They still need the same kind of love, except when they get to be about 13, when they start to hit puberty, whenever that is, they'll need, especially the fathers, to love them in a different way. Still need to touch them. Still need to love on them. Don't let a perverted society keep you from loving your daughter the way you're supposed to love her, in a normal, appropriate way. Then you take her on dates. Then you, you hold her hand on a date. You, you teach her. You know, that, that she, she's establishing her sexual identity. You teach her how beautiful she is, how wonderful she is. And, and, and you do it that way, you see. And, it, and it, you, men, you have to force yourself to do that because you don't, you don't understand her anymore. And you're pulling away because your little girl's becoming a woman. It scares you to death. You still have to stay engaged with that because she's going to reach out for the hand of an approving male, I promise you. And it needs to be you in those, those early years. Now, boys still need that ooey-gooey, sloppy kind, but they'll tell you when they need it, okay? It's in, the, it's in the traumatic times of life. It's when they got the chicken pox all over my body and I hurt so much and you just want to <coughs> love on them a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, crud. <coughs> I may need that water right there. Uh, Thank you, man. But they'll let you know when they need it. The problem is this. We live in such a frantic society that most of those teachable moments, most of those loving moments, we miss it. We're not there. Matter of fact, they say that some way cults get kids into it is they say, when were you rejected? When did you need love and your family wasn't there? And then they hold them and they love them and say, we'll be there for you. We'll, we'll, we'll be there. Uh, so, so it's important. So love creatively. Laugh contagiously. Have fun at your house, okay? We, we've created a generation of church people instead of Jesus people, and church people are miserable to be around. You know, they're like the elder brother. They're mad about everything, you know. Uh, be Jesus. Jesus, what's the first thing Jesus did to start his ministry? What did he, what did he do? Did he have an all-night crusade? Did he have a prayer meeting? He went to a stinking party is what he did. He went to the wedding feast at Cana, okay? Uh, I used to do children's church. One time I asked the kid, why did Jesus turn the water to wine? The little boy said, to keep the party going, so I don't ask that anymore. Uh, 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 but he just had fun. He didn't share the four spiritual laws with anybody, you know? Christians can't have fun because we got all these people saying, well, you got to do spirit. you got to share the four. Well, Jesus didn't. You know, he just had, when's the last time as a family you just had fun? Just had fun. Just, just have some fun. What Jesus did. 
You know, he had so much fun, the religious people got ticked off at him for it. You know, especially you guys. You know, if you're not careful, you men, you'll be against anything. You know, no, we can't do this. No, I can't. You know, what can we do? Just be miserable the rest of your life, kids like me. That's what you do. Uh, so, have some fun. Uh, sometimes Sundays are, are the. My, my, we lived in a parsonage. That's why I became a psychologist. You know, I grew up in a parsonage, and whoever thought of that ought to be shot. But anyway, that's how I grew up. And uh, and then we moved. We moved down the street. The church still owned the house, but we moved a mile away. So we had to drive to church because Dad was a preacher, and we had to be there on time. And I can remember Sunday morning was, I mean, it was awful. I mean, you can't wear that at church. You can wait. We're running late again. You got 32 seconds to eat your Fruit Loops. Praise God we're going to church. Hurry, 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 hurry. And I'm going, you know, trying to eat those Fruit Loops, which, you know, everybody's hurrying, running around, hollering, you know. And Dad, I called Dad the heavenly honker, you know, because he's out there honking the horn, you know. We got to go honk the horn, you know. And, uh. I'm thinking, why don't you come in and help? That'd be good. And then so, uh, so finally we get in the car. There's four kids. I'm the baby of the family, so you know where I am. I'm in the back seat in the middle on the hump. Remember humps in cars? The back seat in the middle on the hump. You know, like this, everybody in a bad mood. And then we pass the heathens. Remember the heathens on the corner? Every neighborhood has them. You know, the heathens on the corner. He's out there in his underwear drinking a Bud Light. They're playing softball and laughing. We're in the corner going to church. And then Dad sees a heathen. Look at those heathens out there. They don't know the joy of Jesus. <laughs> I made a commitment in the back seat of the car. I'm with the heathens. Yeah, I'm going with the heathens when I get out of here. You know. Well, how did that happen? We're the ones supposed to be having the fun. You know, we're the ones going to remember our fun. You know, so have some fun. It's important. You, you laugh contagiously. You discipline consistently. You discipline consistently. Kids are looking for boundaries. Remember, you got to make them do. Kids are always asking this question. Do you love me? Which the answer is yes. And the second question is, can I get my way all the time? And the answer is no. You, know, you have to teach them, this is, this is, when this happens, this happens. Most of the time, it's logical consequences. If, if, you, if you don't know where to play, you don't get to play. You know, the Bible says, what's her man sows, that shall he also reap. Now, you say, well, what, what about spanking? Well, the, the problem with spanking is, is we've taken New Testament, we've taken Old Testament concepts and put them in a culture that's totally different. Uh, for example, the rod in the Old Testament was a rod. I mean, it was huge. So when you think about beating a child with a rod, he will not die. You beat a child with that rod, he will die. We, we, they die all over the country from child abuse this day and age. So we're not talking about that kind of rod. Matter of fact, remember in the New Testament, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods that was their prison system. That's how, they, that's how they dealt with people. They didn't have 30 days in jail and stuff like that. You know, they didn't have probation officers. They would hit you with a rod a certain amount of time, and you could only hit them a certain amount of time so they wouldn't die. You, know, you, had, you, you had restraints on that. But when you look at that verse, it's talking about rods, it's in Proverbs, and Proverbs is written by Solomon to his, by David to his son Solomon. And if you look at Proverbs, this is talking about harlots, it's talking about money, it's talking about issues that a young man has to deal with. So when it says child, we're really talking about a young man, see. So to take that and extrapolate that to children is totally inappropriate. So what you do is, there's certain times, certain ages, where kids can't understand anything but pain. 
So if they put their finger in a light socket, you might want to pop that hand and say, no, you know, don't do that. But then there's a certain age when they start to understand whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Then you start letting them suffer consequences that, that, that isn't administered by you, it's administered by the way the world works, you see. You're teaching them about life. Discipline is to teach, not to punish, you see. And so once you start to understand that, you start to get creative. When you choose to do this, this happens. And you teach them how to think, see. Uh, and, and a good thing for a parent to say, let's think through this. Because kids have to learn how to think, you see. I mean, you can control them all their life. I used to work at a Christian college. Some Christians' kids were controlled all their life. And then they get to college. And, and they say, you mean you don't have to go to class if you don't want to? You mean you don't have to study if you don't want to? You mean you don't have to come in at night if you don't want to? Oh, I'm going to love college. And they do for one semester. They flunk out. Why? Because they've developed no internal controls. The controls were the parents, you see. So you start to develop that. I don't have time to go into all that, but you have to discipline consistently. And let me just give you just one little thing here. Mothers talk too much, okay? Remember, generally speaking, some women are generally speaking. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and so you, you, mothers say things like, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times. Well, you don't supposed to tell kids anything a hundred times. That's more reflection on you than it is on them. You tell them once and then you do something, you see? You don't tell them over and over again. Women don't, they talk too much. But men, you don't talk enough, okay? You don't talk enough. You need to explain more. You need to talk to your kids more about this is why you're being punished. This is why this is happening. And then eventually, as they start to become teenagers, you want to talk to them before the event happens and let them start working out what are some of the consequences. Again, you're getting them to think like an adult. You're trying to raise a champion, not just a big kid, you see. So you slowly let that, let that go. And you let them understand that you are also under authority, that you're still working on things too. You know, I, I, I worked with disturbed kids one time, and I used to have a sentence completion. Being an adult means, and the kid says, being an adult means, most of them says, you can do anything you want. Well, that's not what being an adult means. You know? So you let, you let them see you're still working on stuff. We used to have at our house uh, something called a Saturday box. What that means, if you left something out, it's not supposed to be out, it went in the Saturday box, and you didn't get to use it until the next Saturday. And so sometimes I would, sometimes I would do it anyway, but naturally, but every now and then I'd just leave my golf shoes out on purpose. And the kids would love to find my golf shoes to put it in the Saturday box because dad, if he played golf, would have to play barefooted because he forgot to put his shoes up and now they're in the Saturday box and he suffers the consequences of his behavior. That's what they need to learn about life. When this happens, this happens. And you consistently do that. This is the way it works, you see. Not only for kids, for adults. Uh, it's important that we understand that. So we discipline consistently. Uh, we set an example carefully. Uh, let me just put it this way. Your kids are pretty much going to turn out like you. It may take a while. You know, they may go live with the pigs for a while. <laughs> Eventually, they will come to their senses, and they'll pretty much end up like you. It's the way it is. So you set that example carefully. You say, well, I, I'm trying to do that, and it doesn't seem to be working. It, 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 doesn't, it, it takes a while. You know. The brain, many uh, adolescents' brains don't mature to 21, 22, 23. You know. uh, your job is to keep them from killing themselves or somebody else till they get to that age, you know, basically, uh, so they can start to, start to mature. 
And, and if they go live with the pigs, let them suffer the consequences. See, what happens, if you're not careful, your self-esteem will start to depend on how your kids act. And you're headed for dysfunction, you know, because you won't let them suffer the consequences. You protect them. You, 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 you cover for them. If you yourself, see, God was a perfect parent. He let Adam and Eve do what they did, and they didn't turn out too well. But, but it's no reflection on God. It's Adam and Eve, you see. It's, it's like, let's take, give an example. Let's say a, a, a little boy starts, he's like a certain age, and he starts to go outside. Old mother will put his coat on because it's cold outside. I mean, you've got to cover for them when they're a certain age. You know, mothers cover for their kids. You, they, they, I mean, you can't let them suffer the consequences. You can't let them suffer the consequences of going out in the street. A truck could hit them. You can't let them. So you keep them. You cover for them. But then they reach a certain age where they start, you've got to start giving responsibility to them. So now he's 10 and he starts to go outside. And you say, put your coat on. He said, no, I don't want to put my coat on. You, you put your coat on. No, I'm not putting my coat on. It's cold outside. You put your coat on. It's not that cold. I can't play with the coat. You put, you put your coat on. You're not going outside. Now, why does she do that? Most of the time it's this. She doesn't want the other mothers to say, what kind of mother is that? Let that child go out there without a coat. You see, that's dysfunctional. Your self-esteem starts to depend on what other people think. See, I want you to get to the point where you're secure in who you are. You can let the little twerp go out there without a coat. And he'll freeze his rear end off, and he'll be knocking on the door saying, it's cold out there, I need a coat. And he'll suffer the consequences, and he'll end up being a responsible adult and won't be in a mobile home beside his mother for the rest of his life. You understand? See, that's the way it works, see? Suffer the consequences. And then finally, I, I told him I'd stop at 7, so i got to do this. The last thing is Christ eternally. You can't give them forever what you need to give them. And that's a perfect father. That's a perfect parent. My dad's not here, and my dad was a good father. He wasn't a perfect father. But he gave me a perfect father, you see. You got to teach your kids that they're in God's family, that they're God's little boy, that they're God's little girl. One kid was uh, one of those handicapped kids, and he, uh, he never wanted to do anything in the Christmas program. They always ask him every year. Well, one year he told his dad, it was about fourth grade, he said, Dad, I think I'm going to do it this year. I think I'm going to try to do something in the Christmas pageant. Dad said, that'd be great, son. I know it's going to be tough for you, but yeah, I think you can do it. Had a small part, and he walked out on stage, and he just messed it up really bad. Matter of fact, he messed it up so bad, some of the kids kind of laughed at him over in the side. Dad was backstage, and Dad couldn't take it anymore. Dad just walked out on stage in front of everybody, hugged his kid, turned to the audience and said I want you to know that I'm so proud of this kid he's my boy he's never had the, enough courage to be in any Christmas play since he's been in school but he did this year and I want you to know I love him I'm proud of him of course everybody gave a thunderous ovation because everybody loves a good father don't they but my friend that's God see that, that's God he loves you no matter what you see I mean you can relate to that I mean, I mean, you ever had a kid come to you and it's like Father's Day and they're in first grade and they give you this present that they've made for you. They did it in art class. And you look at it and it's construction paper and it's a macaroni mess. I mean, they've taken macaroni and glued it and they've tried to make something for you. And they tell you that it's like, 
it's like George Lincoln, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's Abraham Washington, and there's a mesquite tree that he cut down, and, you know, it's just a mess. There's nothing right about it. And what do you say? You say, that's a macaroni mess. You didn't, that's not right. No. You take that and you put it on your refrigerator. Everybody comes by, you say, look at that. For me, it's a macaroni masterpiece. That's what it is. Being a preacher's kid, we lived in that parsonage, and it seemed like the parsonage was always here, and the church was always here. And there's a huge cemetery in the middle. I mean, huge. A lot of dead deacons, huge. <laughs> and if I played at night, everybody would go home. My dad had to stay because he got to keep all the deacons happy. So he's still going to stay forever. So I, didn't wanna, I wanted to play, but I didn't want to wait forever. So I'd come home by myself. Miserable experience. Even dead people can scare you when you're a kid. You know that? I mean, scare me to death. I'd hear noises. I'd run over a tombstone. I'd fall down and get scared and run this way and forget where my house was. I mean, it was terrible. So even being a kid, I was pretty smart. I figured out I'm not doing that anymore. I'm waiting for my daddy. When my daddy was with me, it was so much different. We had fun. We, we'd He'd chase me around the tombstone every now and then. We'd play game, and then I'd get tired. He'd just pick me up and take me home. I'd wake up. Sometimes I'd be home, be in the bed. You know. It makes a huge difference when you got your father with you. That's what you want to give your kids. You want to give them the perfect father. But their father's always with them. I, uh, what I do is I'm a public speaker. I, I speak to a lot of churches, but I, I speak to a lot of businesses. I... Uh, I spoke in Canada this year. I, I, I sometimes speak to, in countries. I don't even know who people are. They don't know who I am. I don't know who they are, but I got to go out and connect with the audience, secular audience, connect with them. You, you know what the greatest fear is in the country? If you did a survey of fears, the number one fear in America would be public speaking. You do it, a survey, every survey. Number one fear is public speaking. Matter of fact, in most surveys, number one is public speaking, and number two is death. And that's weird, isn't it? I mean, so, so if you go to somebody's funeral and somebody up here is doing the eulogy and somebody else is in the casket, most people out there would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Now, that's weird. But guess what? I can walk out on any stage in America. And as we say in Alabama, I'm not scared of nothing. Why? Because I'm God's little boy. Even if I feel handicapped, even if I don't think I can do it, I'm not afraid of anything because I'm God's little boy. You give that to your kids. You let them know whatever stage they walk out on, whether it's a stage of marriage, whether it's a stage of work. Even if they have to walk through a cemetery one day, they won't be afraid of anything because they're God's little boy, because they're God's little girl. That's what you pass down. It's not what you leave to them. It's what you leave in them that's going to last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you that you're such a good God. Lord, teach us to pass down your wisdom and our faith to this next generation. May they be your children and change their culture as they become champions for Christ. Thank you for what you're going to do through your words tonight. Thank you for Jesus and how good he is to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Charles.